listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right, well, by now you already know I am not Eric Barton, so I am not the pastor of the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. Um, um, I am a member here, like you, and now you know I'm a deacon candidate, and um, I'm the only deacon candidate who was either given the blessing or the burden to stand here in front of you and uh, either convince you that they are appropriate or that they are not. Um, I'll just say, look closely at mine and Atkinson, there, you know, there's lots of things to look at. Um, the best thing I could say about Nathan and probably me too is that we married way above our station in life, so that might be our primary qualification actually for being a deacon. Now, most of you probably know my wife. Um, I feel much more comfortable in this service than in the first because I knew nobody in that service. This is the service that we come to and where we're always at, and you um, probably have seen my wife down on the second floor volunteering in the children's ministry. And she would love for me to put in a plug for you to, to come down there and if you're not already volunteering and sign up to volunteer. Um, and you've probably seen my kids, for better or for worse, sitting right over here by us. And uh, they have a penchant for being able to drop a matte pencil or a crayon at just the right time when Eric is making his most important point. They're really good at that. And then what usually happens is I freak out and snap at them. And then Stephanie looks at me and reminds me that none of us are, are helping um, at all, that I should just you know, be quiet and be still. Um, and that's sort of us. It's, you know, crazy, crazy train, crazy town over there, and it's just, it's just the way it is, but we love being here. We love the opportunity to worship with our kids, and we love a place that encourages us to do that. Now, this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 63. We'll continue on in the wisdom series that we've been in, but um, as I did in the first service, I, I have the microphone, and perhaps the only thing more dangerous than a pastor with a microphone is a lawyer with a microphone, and so I want to say a, a couple of things. Um, <clears throat> about this place. Now, my family and I have been fortunate enough to be here for about two years. And um, we immediately, upon coming here, um, believed deeply in the vision that we have to be messed up people gathered around God's word here in the center of our city. And we, we believe in that. We believe in the Downtown Arts Initiative. We believe in the foundry. We believe in all of it, and we love it all. And so we, pretty quickly after we got here, decided that this is where we wanted to, to be. This was the group of people we wanted to join up with, and, and we are really, really thankful to be here. But when we came here, um, it was a difficult point in our life. Um, we've been here, I said, about two years ago. We got here, and, and we were going through just a really difficult season where we'd lost a close family member, and we just had some other stuff going on, you know, stuff that you have yourself experienced. Um, and it was just a tough, tough, tough time. And what I've learned since then is that when you're in the place that we were, this is the place to be. Um, and the reason I say that is because the, the Lord was so merciful to us to bring us here and bring us here quickly after we left our last sort of post. And um, here we got grace. Every Sunday, Eric and Matt, or whoever else was standing here, whoever it was, they gave us grace. And we heard over and over and over again this message of the gospel, the good news of what God has already done in Christ to reconcile us to himself and to each other. And that is good news. And when you are where we are, 
the gospel of self-improvement is not good news at all. We were not here to hear somebody tell us how with more and more and more effort we could do better and we could be better. That was not good news. It would not have been good news. It was decidedly bad news for us at that point. And we constantly and consistently got grace. And yesterday I turned 37 years old. And so I did the math, and that's like 1,900 Sundays. And about 1,850 of those Sundays, I have been in a church somewhere with my behind in a pew because that was just one of the requirements of being um, Patricia and Dwayne Mazingo's son was church attendance. And I can say definitively after all those years in a church that I have never been in a place like this where the staff, leadership, elders, deacons were as committed to that message of the gospel as they are here. And you and I are the benefactors of that commitment. And Steph and I are thrilled to be here, to be yoked up with you, and it's a great honor and privilege for me to be standing right here in front of you. Um, now, you might be asking, quite like I am, even at this moment, why in the world is this guy up there? That's a great question. It's a really good question. And I think there are uh, two potential answers. One is, a couple of months ago, we had a children's ministry function at our house in our backyard, and Eric approached me and asked me if I would do this then. So maybe the first lesson you could learn is don't invite the pastor over to your house. Like that's one thing you probably shouldn't do is don't have a function in your backyard and don't invite him. But the other sort of theory I have working is that Eric is curious just how much job security he has. And he is going to, on the heels of his two mission trips in Europe, he's going to now put me up here and with elders in the, in the audience and find out just how much um, job security that he actually does have. Now, we may find out. I hope that I can keep it on the rails and keep it within the bounds of sort of historic Christian orthodoxy, but we, um, I think I did in the first service, but, you know, we'll see if I can do that, do that here. Now, as you probably remember, we had 20 or so weeks in Galatians, and in the last couple of months, we've been talking about wisdom. We spent um, three or four weeks with Eric talking to us from the Proverbs, and then we have spent a few weeks here in the Psalms first with Mike, and then with Matt, and then with Scott, and now with, with me. And I will tell you that, um, like Scott and Matt before me, um, Psalms is really not my thing. I'm not a Psalms guy. Um, I believe it's inspired just like the other 65, but I am, I am a nerd at heart. And so Romans and Galatians and Ephesians are where I usually find myself. I don't find myself very often reading in the Psalms. And if every sermon that I heard from now until the end of time was from Romans, that would suit me right down to the ground. And maybe even just Romans 8 and 9. You could just camp out there, Eric, for the next 30 or so years, and I think I'll be happy. But I know after prepping for this that I would be way out of balance and that I'd be incomplete um, if that's the approach that I took. What I've discovered over the last few weeks, or last, really the last week, is that the Psalms have the capacity to speak to our heart in a way that no other book of the Bible really does. Now, I've been digesting this great little book called You Are What You Love by a Christian philosopher named James K.A. Smith. And Smith's central idea of this book is that we are, at our core, lovers. He would not disagree with, with Eric and with Tozer who say that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you, but he would say that's not the only important thing about you. You're not just a thinking thing. You're also, at your core, um, a lover. And that is why I think the Psalms have such a capacity to change us because they speak to our heart in a way that Romans just does not. Now, we're going to look at Psalm 63, 
and we're going to read it, and then we'll step through it. I'll make a couple of, of general observations about it, and then we'll go verse by verse because that's what we do here. And then hopefully I'll be able to draw some implications um, from it. But I'll just warn you that um, verses, there's 11 verses, but really the, the, the four verses that I am most concerned about and camping out on when we get started is verses 5 through 7. Um, and those are, in, in my mind, the most important verses in this particular psalm. But Psalm 63 says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judea. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the pits of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, Psalm 63, um, if you look back at the sort of heading to it, there's no question that David is the writer here. Um, context tells us that, and there's no serious question about who, who is the author of this psalm. And structurally, it's like a lot of the other songs. It, it, it doesn't have a lot of structure. Um, Mike talked to us a couple weeks ago from Psalm 112, and he told us that Psalm 112 is an acrostic along with Psalm 111, and it uses every word or every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And Mike also told us that um, he thinks that psalms are supposed to rhyme. And um, if they don't rhyme, they're just a collection of words. I think that's the exact phrase that he used. And I am like Mike in that way. Um, my sort of poetic, the height of my poetic knowledge really sort of stops at go, dog, go. I don't know how many of you know Go Dog Go, but it's a fantastic little poem that we, use, we used to use with our kids um, all the time. And, and this is not like Go Dog Go. It doesn't rhyme. It really is just a collection of words. Um, but I think the beauty of it is self-evident when you just listen to what David is saying. Now, the heading of the psalm also tells us that it was written by David when he was in the wilderness of Judea. Now, David spent two different times in the wilderness of Judea. One time he was fleeing Saul, and one time he was fleeing his own son. Um, the context of the verse, or of the, of the passage, sort of suggests that David probably, in this instance, was fleeing from Absalom. So, why is David fleeing Absalom? Well, Absalom is trying to take the throne, and he has basically decided that he is going to take the throne by any means necessary. And so he has a desire to take David's life. And he has decided that he will do whatever he can to provoke his father. He is sleeping with David's concubines in a very public way in an effort to be as offensive as he possibly can. Now, with that context in mind, let's sort of walk through the entire psalm, and we'll spend most of our time, like I said, verses 5, 6, and 7. The first sort of section of this psalm, it breaks down pretty cleanly into three different sections. The first one is about David's desire. And we see in verse 1, we see David starts the psalm with this sort of bold declaration of, Oh God, you are my God. Think about the sort of audaciousness of this statement. This is David 
And he is talking, talking about Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And David says, you are my God. It is a shocking sort of level of intimacy that he claims to have with the God of the universe. One commentator says this of David's bold declaration, the longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger, feeling his way towards God, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. The simplicity and boldness of David's, oh God, you are my God, is the secret of all that follows. So this intimacy that David feels with God is what is the key that unlocks the rest of of this psalm. It is what sheds light on the rest of what David is going to say. And he continues in verse 1 by describing his desire. He says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David is using what he sees around him, right? He sees this um, deserted area, this desolate land, and he is using that to describe what he feels toward God, this longing that he feels for intimacy with God. And notice, too, that David is talking about the entirety of his being. He says, my soul thirsts and my flesh faints. There's nothing left out, nothing in David that doesn't desire this intimacy with the Father. Now, David's language here in verse 1 is sort of reminiscent of what Jesus says in Matthew when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. David, his desire here is for intimacy with God. He wants nothing else. He doesn't want water as bad as he wants to be intimate with his father. And then in verse 2, David says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now, I never thought I would say this, but the King James translation is probably slightly easier, at least for me, to understand and seems to better communicate what David, I think, is trying to communicate to us. The King James says, To see the power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. David is hearkening back to a time when he has worshipped in the sanctuary, and he is reminding himself of that time, and he is talking about what he experienced at that time and his desire to experience that level of intimacy again. David sort of has the same sort of experience that we see from Isaiah when he talks about what he experienced in the temple. Now, I love what Spurgeon says about verse 2. He says, he longed not so much to see the sanctuary as to see his God. He, licked, he looked through the veil of ceremonies to the invisible one. Often had his heart been gladdened by a communion with God in the outward ordinances, and for his great blessing he sighs again, as well he might, for it is the weightiest of all earth's sorrows for a Christian man to lose the conscious presence of his covenant God. David just longs for this, this connection, this knowledge, this um, intimacy with God that he has experienced before. Now in verse 3, David continues in verse 3 and 4, and he says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Now verse 3 is probably my favorite in this psalm. This is David facing the possibility of death, saying, Your love is better than life. Your love is better than life. I can give up my life as long as I have your love. I can deal with whatever else may come. Now, my favorite part of verse 3 is the first word where David says, because. Now, you might say that's a sort of odd word to fixate on. Not the first time I fixated on something that other people found odd. Um, and it is an odd word to fixate on. But the reason why I fixated on because 
is because it tells us that there is a reason. It is explainable and it is thought out. David is not talking about some blind allegiance here. He is not, um, his praise is well-reasoned. It's well thought out and it's rational. David is saying, I think I have experienced your steadfast love and have found that it is true and it is real. And because of that, I will praise. There's a reason for this praise. And this is why we praise, right? It is not because we have a myopic view of the world and we have no idea that the world has difficulties. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I've experienced plenty of difficulties in my life. And I still believe that God is good. Um, and we experience his faithfulness, his goodness, and his mercy in those difficult times. And it's through that evidence that we know he is worthy of our praise. Now, the second stanza of this psalm is my favorite. Um, I love verse 3, but I, in terms of a, a total stanza, this is my favorite, where David starts to talk about his satisfaction. And I think this um, portion of the psalm has the most weight and most application for us as we sit here today. David says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Now David is talking about an issue that colors all the other issues that we face in life. He's talking about satisfaction. Now, you might not be like me, and that's great. <laughs> I commend you. Um, but if you are, the most constant struggle that you feel, and certainly the most constant struggle that I feel, is this internal struggle around where I'll find contentment. Where will I be satisfied? And maybe it's just me, again, but every morning before my feet hit the floor, I have to remind myself of who I am and what that means. I have to remind myself every day about the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to reconcile me to himself and to you. And I have to remind myself of that every day because I am prone to wandering, I am prone to striving, and I am insanely prone to fear. Right? And it's this gospel every morning that reminds me of who I am my position in Christ, and this concrete reality that because of who I am in Christ, that I don't have to strive. I don't have to fear. I don't have to wander. I have to remind myself that this work is already done, and that because of that, I am in Christ. That I'm completely known, and yet deeply loved, and that I can rest in that knowledge. For me, this is the fight of my life. And I know I'm not the only one. I've heard you guys talk about it, some of you, that this is, it's hard to understand this gospel, to grasp this reality of who I am, what God has done, and that therefore who I actually am. But after I remind myself of these realities, and I've got them firmly planted in my brain, um, a couple hours later, by 7 o'clock, I am, I'm off the rails, right? I've woken up. And I've just sort of forgotten about all that stuff that I just told myself a few hours earlier. When the emails start and the phone calls start, I start looking around for anything else that might satisfy. I've abandoned the living water of the gospel, and I'm, I'm drinking from any dirty cup I can find. 
right? Anything that I can find that I think for a moment might give me satisfaction, I'm drinking. And I'm hoping that these things, for the first time, even though they've disappointed me every day of my 37 years, I am hopeful that this time they can satisfy. That this water of money or achievement or of people's approval or whatever else it might be, that this time is going to be different. This time it's going to satisfy. And whatever it is, it only takes me till about 7 o'clock and I'm drinking it. And I'm still thirsty, so what do I do? I just keep drinking. And by 7 a.m. on the weekend, what I really want is for everyone to leave me alone. Right? I've got three beautiful little kids. Two of them are sitting over there, so I wouldn't want them to think that I don't think that they're beautiful. But um, let's be honest. Sometimes I just want them to be quiet. Right? Eric might say shut up right here, but my wife doesn't let me say shut up, so I can't say that. I'm just going to say be quiet. Shut up is a yellow word, so we don't say shut up. And so really all I want them to do is be quiet. And I'm sure that my wife, there are lots of days when really all she wants is for one of the four people who lives with her to clean up after themselves without having to threaten their life. Just once. Um, and these sort of anecdotes are funny, but they also are revealing. They're subtle reminders that all these things, our kids, our wife, our jobs, they're not designed to bear up under the weight that we're putting on them, that they are not capable of providing us with this deep soul satisfaction that we want and that David is talking about. But for some reason, I keep drinking, and I keep talking about and thinking about how thirsty I am. I keep thinking, this, this one time, these kids are going to do everything I want, and I'm going to be the most satisfied guy in the world. And they just never seem to cooperate. Now, David compares this deep soul satisfaction he has with fat and rich food. Now, I have partaken in some fat and rich food in my life. And I suspect this sort of analogy is a little more lost on us than it would have been on David's audience, um, who only probably experienced fat and rich foods at times of feast and who had experienced certainly times of famine. I'm sure that the comparison made much more sense to them. But even we can testify that there is a stark difference between the level of satisfaction we feel with a McDonald's hamburger and a thick, well-marbled steak. This is not McDonald's-level satisfaction David is talking about here. Or, to put it in terms that our pastor might use, this is the difference between Tostitos chips with some sprinkled cheese and Rick's voodoo chicken nachos, right? The pastor knows, and I know, we may share a love of nachos, but not all nachos satisfy in the same way. I've got an amen from the pastor. If we think about satisfaction on a slightly deeper level, I think there are two components. At least I'm going to argue to you there's two components. The first is pleasure, and the second is rest. And here's how I get there. I'm satisfied when I have experienced the pleasure that I have been seeking, and when I can rest from the seeking of that pleasure. Now, as Christians, we are 
fearful of this word pleasure. We have bought the notion that the Christian life is pleasureless and that we are just trying to white-knuckle our way to the end. As I was thinking about this, my mind turned to two great quotes that I've thought about often and I've shared many times over the years. I'll confess to you that one of these quotes my wife hates, and she thinks I shouldn't share it. So it's going to go first. Um, hopefully she'll have forgotten you know, by the time we get back home. It's by, by a guy named William Lazarus. And Dr. Lazarus was a, was a bishop in the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and he wrote this of Martin Luther, the great reformer. He said, Luther's faith was simple enough to trust that after a conscientious day's labor, a Christian father could come home and eat his sausage, drink beer, drink his beer, play his flute, sing with his children, and make love to his wife, all to the glory of God. Now, you can probably imagine why my wife really didn't want me to use that quote. The other quote I thought about was from Lewis in The Weight of Glory when he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. Here's the point, I think. Our God is a God of extravagance. He has created you to experience joy and pleasure and rest. He did not create you to white-knuckle it to the end. That is not why you are here. He created you to experience him and in him to be satisfied. The idea of pleasure is also in our historic Christian creeds. Most of you know that the first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer comes back, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Now, John Piper has built a ministry on this entire idea, building on that and the work of Jonathan Edwards. He has spent his life trying to convince us that man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In his book, Desiring God, he lays out the fundamental tenets of what he calls Christian hedonism, two words that don't really seem to go all that well together. Three of those tenets are these. The longing to be happy is a universal and human experience, and it is good and not sinful. We should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. And finally, the pursuit of pleasure is necessary part of all worship and virtue. Now, before Eric starts getting emails about my heresy about pleasure, let me, let me say a couple things about it. Not all pleasure is God-honoring. That's not the argument that I am trying to make here. I think that's self-evident, but I think I also have to be completely clear about that. But part of enjoying God is enjoying the good gifts that he has created and the good things that he has created for us to enjoy. Any good thing enjoyed as a gift from God is God-honoring. Here's the pitfall for us. We humans have an amazing capacity to turn a good thing into the ultimate thing, and that's where things go off the rails. We can overindulge in the good gift of food and become gluttons. We can overindulge in the good gift of wine and become alcoholics. 
but we can also overindulge in the good gift of self-discipline and become legalist. Here is the test, at least for me. Am I the center of this thing as the pleasure seeker, or is God at the center of this thing as the glorious creator of the thing that I am enjoying? It's a subtle but massively important difference. The former is self-indulgence, and the latter is worship. The latter is worship. We can enjoy these things that God has created as a means of worshiping him. Now, the second component of satisfaction, I think, is rest. I am satisfied when I can rest from my seeking. I am no longer looking for pleasure. I have experienced it. My desire has been fulfilled, and now I am satisfied. Augustine gives voice to this in the Confessions when he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And more importantly, Jesus gives voice to this in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now the rest that Jesus is talking about is the rest in the knowledge of the fact that he has finished the work that he came to do. And because of that, you are in him, and you don't have to strive and you don't have to seek. He is the rest that you seek. He is the pleasure that you are seeking. Now, because I have failed so miserably at this so many times, I could talk probably about this issue of pleasure for hours. Um, and I actually, at one point, probably had enough material to talk about it for hours. But the last thing I want to say is this. I think that Lewis and Luther and Augustine and Piper and Jesus would all agree the Christian life is not a <clears throat> restless, pleasureless experience. It is a life where pleasures have been rightly ordered, where the pleasures of this life are enjoyed as good gifts from our Creator and not as ends unto themselves. Now, David gives us some insight into how he experiences these in verses 6 and 7 when he talks about remembering and meditating. Now, I don't know about you, but remembering is not a problem that I have. My wife is convinced it's a problem that I have, that I don't remember many things that she tells me. But what's actually going on is my wife is misremembering what she thinks she told me. There is a memory problem in our relationship, but it is not with me. It is certainly with her. Um, I do forget some of the simple tasks that I'm probably supposed to perform around the house. But I'll tell you what I don't forget. And Megan talked about this a while ago, just a little bit when they were worshiping. I don't forget everything I've ever done wrong. I, I can relate to the, the anxiety, the panic attacks. I get that. I know that. I don't forget the things that I've done wrong, right? I can sit there at 2 or 3 in the morning, and I can recount to you every moral failing that I've had in years. Every failing, real or perceived, as a husband every failing real or perceived as a father, I can do it. But I can tell you from experience that that's not the kind of remembering and meditating that David is talking about. That's not the kind of remembering and meditating that will bring you life. It will not bring you satisfaction. It will bring you only more death. David says, I will meditate on you and I will remember you. Now David has some moral failings to meditate on and to remember. But apparently he's decided that's not a fruitful way to go about life. Right? I'm not going to meditate on all my sins. I'm going to meditate on you. And for us, on this side of the cross, this is doubly ridiculous. It is unnecessary because that's the message of the gospel. Right? That's the message of the gospel that all those failings, real or perceived, 
are covered by the blood of Christ. And because of that, I don't have to try to make up for those. I have been reconciled to God. So it's unnecessary, but it's also self-defeating. This thing is never going to help you. Megan knows, I know, laying there in the middle of the night and thinking about all the things you've done wrong is never going to fix anything, never going to make anything better, never going to give you any sort of life, never going to give you any sort of satisfaction. Now in verse 8, David starts talking about a conclusion to the first seven verses and a little bit of an introduction to the next stanza, I think. One commentator has said this, my soul, well, the verse says, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. One commentator has said, the two halves of verse 8 make one of the most vivid statements of the two facets of perseverance. The word clings is familiar to us elsewhere in the Old Testament as cleaves. The old translation remains the best. My soul followeth hard after thee, but it is God himself who makes this possible. And the firmness of his upholding grasp is implied in the allusion to his right hand, the stronger of the two. So this is our perseverance. This is what David claimed is his perseverance. I will cling to you, but the far more important component of this is that you will cling to me. I will chase after you. I will follow after you. But more importantly, you will hold on to me with your strong right hand. Now in the last stanza, David starts to talk about, starts to move towards a more um, negative direction, you might say, a more imprecatory direction where he's starting to pray against his enemies, which he often does. He says, but those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. We see this theme throughout the Psalms, right? David moves to a position of pronouncing curses and requesting judgment on his enemies. I do this occasionally, right? Not to any of you, of course, but um, we, we prayed imprecatory prayers at our house one time because our, our babysitter was about to move off to go be a missionary in China. And um, she was awesome. And babysitters are really hard to come by in Tyler. I don't know if you know that, especially good ones. And so we, we certainly prayed that it wouldn't work out. I felt a little guilty when it didn't work out. But um, <laughs> what we see here in the last stanza, stanza though, is David's confidence that's born of this intimacy that he has with God. Confidence that God will sustain his life. And really in verse 5, he doesn't appear that concerned about whether God sustains his life, right? He says, if you love me, I'm more concerned about that than I am with my own life. Now, there are three sort of implications that I want to um, talk about here real quickly. The first is that habits matter. Let me start what I'm about to say with this. If you are in Christ, there is nothing you can do to increase or decrease his love for you. Unlike me, he is not an imperfect father. Now, my kids could tell you that um, I have a favorite, right? They would tell you that. And they might tell you that um, for almost all of them, they have their turn as the favorite. Uh, the person who is the day's favorite is the one who seems to be less involved in some sort of grand conspiracy to make all of my hair either fall out or turn gray, right? Um, everybody takes their turn as the favorite, but I tell them all in their ear when I hug them, you're my favorite, and don't tell the others. But God's not like me. 
There is nothing that you can do to make yourself more loved. You are his favorite. You simply cannot be more in Christ. In is in, and there is not more in. You are in Christ. Now, with that in mind, one of the things we see in this passage are the habits, I think, of a satisfied Christian life. Here are some of the verbs David uses to describe his spiritual life. Seek, look, behold, praise, lift up my hands, remember, meditate, and cling. These are the things that David is doing. And I love the great quote from from Dallas Willard when he says, Grace is not opposed to effort. It is a... well, grace is not opposed to, um, well, I forgot the quote, so I guess I won't use it now. And I don't have it written down. That's what you get for not going with what's written down. But these are the things that David is doing. I know when you, when you talk about habits and disciplines that people will freak out a little about legalism. And I understand that. Any amount of legalism certainly is not consistent with the gospel of free grace that we are committed to here. And I, I don't believe that either. Um, But this is not about legalism. And for me, I will tell you that I don't struggle with legalism because I struggle with license. Like we all tend to to go one way or the other, right? I'm not a legalist by nature. I am a sinner by nature, but I'm an aggressive sinner. I am not a sort of laid back, um, you know, maybe I'm doing things for the wrong reason kind of sinner. No, I'm just an out and out sort of license kind of, of sinner. When I sin, it's very unlikely to be the sin of legalism. But the point remains that David links his habit of meditating and remembering to his satisfaction. So habits are not the enemy, right? A heart that desires to control is the enemy, right? My friends who are legalists or who struggle with this tell me that there is this phenomenon where folks do these things, they participate in the disciplines, they come here, they read their Bible, they pray in an effort to put God in their debt. that's That's not who I am. I have other more serious, probably, problems. But that's not the way this works. That's not what the disciplines are for. Now, Paul explicitly prescribes the disciplines. He says to discipline ourselves for godliness. So the purpose of the disciplines is intimacy with Christ and conformity to Christ, not putting God in our debt. You just won't do that. You can't put him in your debt. But how does discipline lead to satisfaction, as David seems to talk about? I think the answer is that the disciplines put us in a position to receive grace. Right? The, position, the, the disciplines put us in the place to immerse ourselves in the life of Christ, to stir up our affections for Jesus. And in that process, we are sanctified. And as Christ replaces our old desires with himself, and as we are conformed to the image of of Christ. We're replacing those old desires and old inclinations with Christ. We are putting on Christ, as it were. The second implication is that distress and satisfaction are not strangers. I'm not sure if anybody has told you, but this, this life is, is hard, and sometimes it's really hard. Now, when we first got here, Eric was going through a sermon series in 1 Peter. And if you want to win friends and influence people, stand in front of a group of people every week and tell them that God's will for your life is that you be saved, that you be sanctified, and that you, stru- that you suffer. That is the message of 1 Peter. That's the theme of 1 Peter. But that will not win you any friends and will not influence many people. 
You know this intuitively. You know this struggle because you've experienced it. Now, this morning, my mind turns to my down-the-hall work neighbor, three doors down, um, to his family. Trevor Morris, 39 years old, father of five, veteran, pastor, vice president of a successful oilfield services company. <clears throat> Life snuffed out on an airplane on Wednesday morning. It's a dramatic example, but you all know that bad things happen. And here's what I know about Trevor, my limited knowledge of Trevor in a couple years of being his neighbor, is that um, he would tell you that life is hard, but God is worth it, that Jesus is worth it. And I think his wife would certainly tell you right now that life is hard, but I think she would also tell you that Jesus is worth it. The truth is that life is harder than we want it to be, that there's more suffering than we would like, that there's less answers than we would like, more gray, less black and white. But keep in mind, as David is talking about this, he is talking about talking to us about this in a position of distress. David's being chased in the wilderness by his son who wants to kill him. That's a pretty significant level of distress. And yet he is able to find satisfaction. Like the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus offers us the opportunity for living water, right? And that water is not dependent upon the situation you happen to be facing today. It's not dependent upon your circumstances. It is dependent upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, the final implication is, I think, the most important, maybe. Enjoy life. Enjoy life. Christian, you are not called to just get by. And the crown you receive in heaven will not be inversely proportional in size to the amount of fun you have here on earth. Fun is okay. Wear a smile. Laugh big. Love big. Do dumb things. It's okay. Enjoy that well-marbled ribeye at Jack Ryan's. Enjoy that wine you like, as long as it's not Franzia. <laughs> Your God is an extravagant God, and he has called you to better than box wine. If that's the best you can do, you should just drink water. But if you are the guy always wearing a frown, stop. If you were convinced during the eight years of the Obama administration that the sky was falling, or you're convinced that it is now, stop. If every third Facebook post you write or comment you make could be characterized as a screed, stop. You were made for more than this. White knuckling is not what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels. And that's not the life he has called you to. At the risk of going off the orthodox rails, which I think we've stayed pretty firmly on, I'm reminded of this great quote from that classic movie, Talladega Nights, where Ricky Bobby's sidekick turned rival, Cal Naughton Jr. They're sitting around the dinner table, and they're talking about Jesus. Some of it's not as, some of it's probably a little sacrilegious. But Cal at one point says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I'm formal, but I'm here to party. Now, I don't think Jesus wore a tuxedo t-shirt, and I don't know that he necessarily would, but I am certain that this Jesus, whose first miracle was to turn water into wine at the wedding in Cana, I am certain that he is not fearful of your pleasure-seeking, that he is not fearful of your desire to have fun. Here's the ticket, I think. Enjoy these good gifts that God has given us, 
and do it as a means of worshiping and honoring him. Right? Any good thing can become a bad thing if it becomes the ultimate thing. But if we do it in a spirit of worship, it is God-honoring. Now, the satisfaction that David is talking about, the pleasure that Piper and the Catechism talks about, and the rest that Augustine talks about, all are predicated on one thing. They're predicated on belief. And what I love about this place, one of the many things I love about this place, is we're not going to ask you to come down here and shake my hand and shake Eric's hand, fill out a card and pray a prayer. We're not going to try to scare the hell out of you, as it were. No, our, our prayer is much more simple than that. Our prayer is just that you would believe, right? Just that you would believe, and that in believing that you would have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this group of people. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for the opportunity to be here among these people, to be in their number. And Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its capacity to change us, to make us new. And I thank you that it gives us life. It's the only place we can find life. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't believe, that you would overwhelm, overwhelm their resistance and that they would believe. And for those of us who do believe, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.